So I think when you make work, it has to have some degree of delight. And I would even apply that to like Maya Lin's um, Veterans Memorial. There's a delight in it. I don't mean delight in the having fun sense, but there's a kind of visual delight. There's a kind of something it sparks because as artists, we're interested in the domain of aesthetic manipulation. But the manipulation is meant to transform a kind of consciousness in terms of you know, the meaning of the work. Hi, this is Libby. And this is Roberta. And this is Art Blog Radio. That was Ken Lum speaking. We're speaking with Ken Lum at his home in South Philadelphia. He's an artist born in Vancouver, Canada, who's been a professor of art in Canada, France, Germany, China. Lum moved to Philadelphia in 2012 to head up the undergraduate fine arts program at the University of Pennsylvania School of Design. So welcome to Philly. Thank you, glad to be here. You studied with Jeff Wall and Ian Wallace, two Vancouver artists, very influential, both conceptual art and photography. How did they influence what you do, or did they? Of course they influenced me because I was very new to art at that time. And, uh, and so you know, uh, they would basically ch channel my thinking in, in a way. Uh, I get asked that question a lot, but at, at some point I also I wish someone would ask me, how did you, I influence them too, so, because there was reciprocation going on at some, at some point. But certainly in the, in the earlier uh, years, right, I didn't know anything about art, so I relied on them to apprise me of, of contemporary art issues and, and such. So how did you come to art if you didn't know anything about art? Well, I was, I was, a, I was a chemistry uh, major. I, that's my undergraduate degree, in fact. And I was actually a research scientist. I was already working for a government lab and... I co-authored a paper in the Canadian Entomological Journal as well. Entomological as yeah. in insects? Yes, in insects. So chemistry yeah. and yes. insects? Yes, no, it was dealing with the pheromones. It was the chemical aspect of it. But uh, I always uh, liked to draw. I liked to, I, I was a sign painter for uh, the local neighborhood uh, stores, eight feet by seven feet large signs, and, and, uh, and in daily or weekly signs, and such as, you know, today's special uh, Salisbury steak, you know, and I'd paint like a Salisbury steak and with peas and mashed potatoes, and then I would have, to, that, was a way of, that was a way of doing, I guess, doing art in lieu of knowing anything about art or even knowing that there was such a thing as the art world. So what turned you? Well, I, as I say, I think I was uh, somehow inclined towards art, but not knowing that there was even an outlet or a possibility to have a career in art, because I didn't go to a museum I had no idea that there was such a thing as an art world, or how crazy it was too, and how, <laughs> how interesting and open it was, right? So, but, but that was because, you know, that's a consequence of uh, my class upbringing. Uh, my mother didn't speak any English. She was working in a sweatshop. Uh, my father wasn't around. And so, you know, we, we were poor. We were always moving about because we, we couldn't make the rent, you know? You started thinking about professional in, uh, endeavors such as doctor, architect, and so on. So that's how I kind of, you know, followed the kind of scientific path, which was, which, which to me was a bit of a curse because I was, I was quite good at it, right? I wasn't, I don't think I was brilliant at it, but I was quite good at it. And it would be maybe easier if I, I was, it was, I had no aptitude for it, because if I had no aptitude, then I could say, well, I, I probably would have come to a decision to, to, you know, redirect myself somehow, but you know, but, you know, I couldn't even face up to my mother in terms of, uh, you know, I want to be an artist. Well, it's all about solving problems, right? No matter what you do. So art is a particular type of 
problem set that you're working on versus science has different problems. I suppose. I mean, in science, it's all kind of based on uh, postulations. You have a postulation, and then you kind of have, have to endeavor through the proof of whether the postulation is correct or not. That's very scientific, right? But in art, it's much more fluid and open. So it's, in a way, it's e much easier because you don't actually have to uh, you know, f announce a kind of postulation, frame a kind of a problem. But then, on the other hand, it's also more difficult, precisely for the same reasons. It's so loose and, and fluid. And also the question of, you know, there's no such thing as verification or proof or anything like that. Right, success. How do you define success? Right. Yeah. So in your own art, let's talk about that for a little bit. You seem to be dealing with issues of identity and hidden histories. You told us you were interested in Philadelphia because it had a lot of hidden histories here so, and that you might do a project about that. So are you working on that? Yes, I am. Can yeah, you I share mean, a little? Sure. I teach a class on monuments and, uh, and issues of mon monumentality and how uh, and, what, and the question of uh, what would be a suitable monument for any given place. Monuments tend to activate public space, right, and uh, as well as obviously demarcate private spaces. And because of those interests, I, I have this idea for a kind of um, negative history festival, which, I, which I'm trying to pursue, right? Um, I'm not sure I'm supposed to announce it, but we're, we're, try, we're applying for a pew and so on. But we, we'd really like to do something like that. I, I think what's, what's interesting is that Philadelphia is at this juncture of, of what I think is a real um, revival, I have to say, in terms of the dialogue that's ensuing among many, many people. Many who are mo moved in recently, you know, universities are growing, the academic community is growing. Quite frankly, the city is, is gentrifying, for better or for worse. And so all those types of activities are putting a kind of pressure on, in terms of how people get along with one another. But on the other hand, it's also spurring this kind of dialogue and consciousness of what's wrong with the city? How can we address the problems that beset the city? Right? There's many problems going from the closure of public schools to this kind of ideologized, as a Canadian, this kind of ideologized attempt to try to defeat any public funding for public schools, I think is, I'll just say it's completely alien to, to me, alien to my DNA. I don't understand that part at all. And so I just think it's at, at a turning point in this uh, Negative History Festival, which we're kind of recalling, uh, renaming as uh, Ambivalent Monuments Festival. Um, <laughs> um, I think could you know, if we get funding and we can do this, uh, could spur uh, this dialogue and entrench this dialogue. Because I think that's the key. I think a lot of people know about, oh yeah, that's Philly, this is the problem. Yeah, garbage and so on, yeah, that's a problem. But, you know, you need, you need um, a sufficient dialogue to, to spur action too. And I sense that among a lot of groups. When you're talking about a festival, are you talking about um, movies and creating Art. Oh and yeah, there would be yes, yes, there would be commissions of. Uh, it would be public manifestations, whether it's whether it's through uh, performance or dance, or uh, film or temporary pavilions, or insertions of some kind of performance. And you yourself are a maker of monuments in some ways. So can you talk a little bit about your own work in the context of monuments? I think my my work was always. Uh, always had the, uh, was concerned with the language of public space, but for whatever reason, I never really did anything in a permanent public context. And so, uh, you know, in, in 2004, I won a big 
competition in, in Vienna, Austria. It was monumental in a very lateral sense. It wasn't monumental in a vertical sense because it took up a space of about 130 meters long. So it was a major kind of installation, and uh, it's still there. And is it meant to be permanent? <coughs> yes, excuse me. What happened was um, it made me uh, stronger in the areas I was really interested in. And it also uh, made me uh, realize where I was wrong in many points in terms of certain assumptions they made in terms of the public audience, for example. So, for example? For example, if you're making art that's uh, more um, localized to the museum gallery context, of course, I, I'm not, I would never assert that the uh, uh, constitution of that audience is somehow homogeneous, but it's much more narrow than if it was just in, if it was in a public space. So does that change the content for you, or just change the form with which you put the content together? I, I would say more the latter. You, you have to uh, shape the, the form of it so that, you know, there's some degree of, you know, I hate to use this term, but some degree of accessibility, some degree of legibility on the part of a much wider audience. And that's where it gets very hard, because on the one hand, you don't want it to be so accessible that it's, uh, it's completely, you know, readable right off right off the bat, right? But you also want to retain the, the more difficult, nuanced content that, that spurred the work. So what was that work? What was it like? Well, that, that work you can actually uh, look up on, online. It's, if you do Google search my name and PI, P-I. It was a work that, for um, Karlsplatz, uh, which is a very famous um, uh, subway interchange um, designed by uh, the fantastic uh, Jugendstil uh, architect uh, Karl Wagner, uh, Otto Wagner, I should say. Alto Wagner, he did the post office in, um, in, uh, in Vienna as well. Um, it was like a, they built this subterranean passageway that connected the uh, celebrated Vienna State Opera House with the Nashmacht and the Vienna Secession. And they did that because post-war, because Vienna did see some fighting and some bombings in, in the Second uh, World War, not, not a lot, but some. And so they decided to modernize and, and extend the uh, ring road and the, and the highway system into downtown. And so what they did to mitigate that was they built a subterranean passageway so that you could bypass the above ground highway. Of course that's not very nice and, and they never updated this space in about 60 years and it was quite dirty and, and so on so the city decided to um, renovate th this space which is as I mentioned close to 130 meters long and so um, I came up with this idea of these um, uh, muroric glass uh, uh, installations with count up and countdown clocks. It's a bit hard to explain, right? But if you look, go online, you, you, you'll see it. And each count up clock would ha be accompanied by a factoid that relates to either something to do with Vienna, such as the number of schnitzels eaten in Vienna <laughs> since January 1, and, and, the, and the clock would actually be moving. You would actually see this clock move according to an approximate real times around dinner time, it's just, it's just flying, and then, and then it quiets down. But other ones would be much more uh, serious, such as uh, uh, amount spent in euros on armaments in the world since January 1, and that one's just constantly going. You know, a number of books uh, loaned out by the uh, Vienna library system since January 1. Um, so this, it's, and the idea was to induce uh, the subterranean viewer to think about the world above. So tell us about the one you're working on right now. I'm working on um, three, actually. I'm, I, um, one that I recently completed was in, was in St. Louis, 
sponsored by institutions both in St. Louis and New Orleans, right? And they're, they're kind of brethren cities because they're both on, you know, points of the Mississippi River. They both, you know, have this lure in terms of American literature, like Mark Twain. And uh, they both have a, a common heritage in a way because St. Louis was founded by two uh, Frenchmen from brothers from New Orleans. So I was asked to do something about what connects, what separates these two cities. And so then I was, you know, I knew about Dred Scott, but I didn't know much about Homer Plessy. Homer Plessy was also, uh, you could say, kind of a civil rights. Is this Plessy versus Ferguson Plessy? Yes, yeah, Plessy versus Ferguson Plessy, right? But in Canada, we, we learned about Dred Scott, but I, maybe we learned about, maybe I was just a bad student that wasn't attentive that day, but I don't recall learning about uh, Homer Plessy. I proposed uh, just two busts, uh, one of Plessy, one of um, Dred Scott, uh, for each city, and they're on plinths, and they're just looking at each other about uh, 15 feet apart. That's it, so it's very simple. <laughs> you know, one way to, you can never fully understand a place, right? Even if you grew up there, you never fully understand it. But I thought one way to shortcut that is to present um, depictions of the most depressed people. I always find, you know, if you present something about the most traumatic event, you know, um, in, let's say you presented something in terms of modern European history and you start with the Holocaust, you would understand uh, a lot about European history, more so than if you studied the reign of uh, Queen Elizabeth II. That's how I kind of looked at it in terms of um, uh, Scott and Plessy. There were auguries to, to uh, you know, obviously the race, racial tensions, but civil rights movement that ensued in the next century. So that was one project, and I don't know if you want to hear. Yeah, yeah. tell us more. Keep going. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. I, well, I, I won um, uh, another one recently for Toronto City Hall. It was a war memorial, and I never thought I could do a war memorial. It was a war memorial in terms of the Canadian campaign in Italy. World War II? World War II, right. The Canadians were, um, you know, had their own little Stalingrad in Ortona, Italy, for example. Thousands died within days, and... You know, like in, in, in Turkey, you had, you know, for the Australians, it was like Gallipoli and things like that. Oh. But for Canada, it was like Ortona. And so I don't normally do war memorials, right? Because, and certainly I wouldn't do, you know, I wouldn't propose a uh, dying soldier or a dead soldier being carried off by a winged angel, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, which is why I think most people associate in terms of war memorials or something, right? And so what I did was I, because it's for Nathan Phillips Square, which is a big square in front of these... City Hall, modernist City Hall, and I decided to uh, ha- have a box that was about uh, in bronze of about three and a half feet height, and it would be a topographical map of Ortona the day after basically defeat. It was, you know, you know, all battles are always to a degree Pyrrhic battles, right? Because it's just so much destruction and so much death. There's lots of pictures: the collapsed church. It's only about maybe a four by two block town, right? And so this is just, it would be quite fun too, visually fun if I could put it that way, meaning it has acts. I, I don't mind using this term, it could delight children even, right? You kind of see the kind of caved in Duomo of the cathedral, all the kind of piles of masonry, flags of Canadian uh, armored vehicles entering in with, with tiny bronze figures entering in. It was the moment of the Canadians entering into a completely destroyed Ortona. So in what way would it delight children? I just mean delight in the sense of a kind of a visual sense, a kind of visual imagining. It would trigger something. 
I see my son, they, they, he's playing with little train engines and he's down at the ground. So he's trying to make it so the train is to scale, real scale in his mind. And so that's what I mean by delight. I don't mean delight in, in the kind of reveling in terms of the, the carnage, but I mean delight in the sense that it, that it, it sparks some sort of you know, imagination uh, in terms of the kind of visual topography. I think when you make work, it has to have some degree of delight. And I would even apply that to like Maya Lin's Vietnam um, Veterans Memorial. There's a delight in it. I don't mean delight in the having fun sense, but there's a kind of visual delight. There's a kind of something it sparks because as artists, we're interested in the domain of aesthetic manipulation. Yeah, but the, the aesthetic manipulation is meant to transform a kind of consciousness in terms of you know, the meaning of the work. So let's talk about your writing side, because in addition to an artist and someone who comes out of a science background, you're a prolific writer. You started a journal called the Yishu Journal of Contemporary Art. Is that still Yishu ongoing? Yishu Journal of Chinese, uh, Contemporary Chinese Art. Contemporary Chinese Art. Yes. And it's, it's probably, I'm happy to say, because I was co-founder of it and founding editor, it's probably, without, it's not probably, without doubt, the most important art journal in China right now. That covers contemporary Chinese art. So, how old is it? How many years? It's is it from around? about 2000, so it's not particularly old. But it was it coincided with a moment in terms of burgeoning of contemporary Chinese art. So, and is it in English or in Chinese? It's or both? it's it's in it's in English now. It's in both, but it was in English for the first few years, because first you have to remember China uh, in 2000 was a lot different from China today, and uh, the readership was most people were not even bilingual. Now, pretty well everybody, in terms of us, the lowest, younger than a certain age, is bilingual in China. It's amazing. They all don't speak English. I mean, at Penn, uh, you know, at the School of Design, the, uh, there's, uh, at the landscape architecture, over 50% of all the graduate students are from China, which caused me to ask a landscape architecture prof. I said, was this a kind of promotion? And they said, no, they were the best. Wow. It was based on merit. You also write for the Canadian Quarterly of Art, is that what it's no, called? No, Canadian Art. Canadian Art, yeah. it's a quarterly publication. Yes. And you are doing some essays for them, I believe. No, I'm doing, I'm doing a kind of a quarterly uh, column. It's, I, I wouldn't say it's an essay, it's only a thousand words, which is not an essay, but it's a column. It's a long column. So one of the topics that you essayed was uh, the state of art education. You are an art educator, mm. and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you've seen. Philadelphia is a big art town mm -hmm. with five major art institutions, mm -hmm. all of whom have master's programs and bachelor's programs. And so everybody's interested in art education here. So what do you think? What's the state of art education in Philly? I don't know if it's, it's localized to Philly. I would say, what's the state of art education in general? What's missing in general from art education is uh, appreciation in terms of the particularities of a student's formation of, of him or herself through their specific social economic formation. And what I mean by that is that I didn't grow up thinking, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be an artist. That was almost excluded from me. And there's a lot of really, I think, a lot of very talented, potentially talented young artists out there who don't know anything about the art world. And they have things to say because they have very perculent backgrounds, right? And, and maybe more urgent things to say. 
than, and I'm, this is generalizing a bit, but than someone who, oh, I always want to be an artist, and when he's 18, I, I went, I, it goes to art school, do, does an MFA, it's completely been streamed. Of course, that's, you always have exceptions. I'm just saying that that aspect of who gets in, who gets to be an artist, who doesn't get to be an artist, who gets to uh, have, have his or her voice heard, is sometimes going to filter out too much, I think, in terms of, of, of the art world. I, I, I mean, I always find that, from my experience, the, the, you know, the student who's even quite taciturn, a bit difficult in school, and so on, often, if you, you know, it has, you have to, it has to be the right one, but often it turns out to be the most interesting artist, the best artist. I mean, I could tell you, that I have, in fact, I corresponded with the next student of mine, uh, Seamus Keeley. You know, he, he even jokes when he emails me, he says, God, I, I was such a a-hole in, in your class, and I, wasn't, I must have been so difficult and a pain in the ass. And I said, yeah, you were, you were such a pain in the ass, and, but I always thought you, had, you were interesting, you had some things to say, and you were selling yourself short, and so on. It does require investment in terms of energy, in terms of prospects. And now, you know, he, he wrote me a few days ago saying he's the new director curator of the uh, Kunstverein in um, Salzburg, Austria. Talking with Ken Lum at his studio in South Philly. Thanks Thank very you. much. It was Thank great. Art Blog Radio is brought to you by theartblog.org. Thanks to our sponsors, including the Knight Foundation. Also, we want to thank Peter Crimmins, who makes us sound good. He's our editor. And thanks to Eric Biondo for his music. You can download these podcasts at theartblog.org slash radio.